Hear now God's holy word from 1 Samuel chapter 3, continuing our study in the book of 1 Samuel. Now the boy Samuel ministered to Yahweh before Eli, and the word of Yahweh was rare in those days, and there was no widespread revelation. Thus far the reading of God's word, let us give thanks together. Father, as we read today of a time in which people didn't care or hear uh, your word, and certainly weren't concerned with it, we pray that we would be. We pray that your word would penetrate our hearts and our ears, that we would receive all that you have to tell us today. Please help me to forget and lay aside anything that's not helpful, anything that is an error. Guard us from distraction, guard us from wandering thoughts. And may we hear again your spirit speaking to us this day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as much as I love the movies, I, I love cinema, I love, I love films, uh, I, we don't end up going to the movies much anymore. Not, not necessarily because there's not that much worth going to see or worth paying to see. That's, that's one thing. And it's not just because you don't have the time to go. That's, that's another thing. But the biggest reason is the fact that uh, movie audiences are just poorly behaved. And they're getting worse and worse. Maybe I'm getting more grumpy. Maybe I'm getting more uh, grouchy and, and I can't put up with it. But, but it seems like it, it's getting worse and worse where people talk to each other throughout the whole movie. They're, they're on their phone, either, either talking on their phone or, you know, you, you look down in front of you and you see this sea of cell phone lights distracting you from what's going on on the screen. Uh, I have been in theaters where people let their kids run up and down the aisles. And they're, they're talking and, 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 and eating like animals. You hear everything that goes into their mouth the whole time. So I tend to try to go to the movies if there's something I really want to see. I go when there are no other people and I try to find some time. But often uh, they're still, they still show up and they still come. And uh, inevitably after the movie begins, some parade of young men will come like 10 minutes into the movie, and they'll sit down right in front of me, and then they'll talk the entire time. And I'll think, why did you come here to talk? You could have sat outside or gone to a park and talked for free. Instead, you pay 12 bucks to come in here and not only not watch the movie yourself, but you ruin it. You ruin it for me as well. And if, and if you do really care about the movie, why aren't you watching it? How, how, are, how are you watching it and talking at the same time? In films, there's a great deal. There's a whole world of attention paid to every line, every scene, every shot is put there for a reason. There is care and thought. And when you're talking, how did you know that line wasn't important? How did you just assume that that scene was not integral to the story? How did you know this? How, how did you... And... How did you know it so well that you thought you could ruin it for me so that I couldn't hear what was going on? Again, maybe I'm grumpy and grouchy, and maybe that's what it is. But uh, it seems like, you know, may maybe movies have become like music. Music now is just, it's, it's just background noise for the majority of people. We don't actively listen to it. We don't pay attention to the lyrics and the skill of the musicians. It's just audio wallpaper. It's just, it's just background. The music is on, but we're not listening. The same way with the television. The television is on, and we're not listening. In fact, the more information that is constantly bombarding us, the better we get at not listening. You, you would think that with all this information, we would be better listeners. But in fact, I find myself actively tuning things out. The, the TVs in the airports blaring, you know, CNN and MSNBC. Is anybody watching? Is anybody paying attention? No, it's just on and it's just noise and it's just blaring. The TVs in the 
waiting rooms at the doctor's office and the oil change place and the, and the TVs in the barber shop, uh, the restaurant, that's what I was trying to think of, the restaurant where there's guys on ESPN just yelling at each other, and that's entertaining. God gave us eyelids so that we could stop looking, we could close our eyes. He gave us lips so we could stop speaking, so that we could not taste, so we could close off our mouth. God didn't give us ear lids. We don't have ear lids, and it's one good reason for that, and that's so that we would be hearers. Our position in relationship to God is a hearer. We are to open our ears, and hearing is the sense of submission. But with this constant distracting cacophony, we've developed, uh, with the lack of ear lids, we have developed other means, other methods of shutting down, of switching off, of tuning out. We've taught ourselves how not to listen. We, We can't just do one thing at a time now. We have to fidget and play and mess around and do other things while, while there is something that we ought to be paying attention to. And how has this changed the way that we communicate with each other? This is my real concern. I don't, you know, you can have movies and TVs and this other nonsense. That's fine. But how has it changed the way we communicate? How many times have you been in a group of people where one person starts telling a story and then somebody pulls out their phone and starts fiddling and then two other people start a separate conversation and the third person walks off and this one person is left telling a story to no one. No one's listening and they just kind of trail off and I say, oh, I guess nobody was interested in that and you feel awkward and foolish. Uh, that uh, we, we do that to each other. We don't actively listen. We don't pay careful attention. We aren't mindful of each other because we're not disciplined hearers. We are trained to not listen. We are training ourselves to not pay attention. And where this is fatal is when we don't hear, when we don't pay attention to the voice of God, when we don't pay attention to his word. And this was the problem in Samuel's day. This was the critical failure in Samuel's day, the problem of not listening. There was a famine of hearing, as the prophet Amos would later say. The people had so learned to tune out God that he stopped speaking to them. There was no revelation, there was no direction, there was no counsel. The people were going their own way, doing their own thing, consumed with their own actions and their own words. They had no time, they had no patience to wait on the word of Yahweh. And of course, as we've seen the last couple of weeks, the fault lies heavily on the shoulders of the Levites. The Levites who were put in the position to keep the word of God before the people. They were failing to protect. They were failing to preach the word of God. And so everyone forgot how to listen, how to hear. Now, this is exactly what God said would happen back in Deuteronomy 28. He says, when you're in the land, if you obey me, your, your, your land is gonna uh, be fruitful and you're gonna have joy and peace and everything's gonna be fine. But if you fail to listen, if you fail to hear, I will make you blind. I will make you confused. I will strike you and the heavens will be like brass and the earth like iron. And that's exactly the kind of situation we have at the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 3. That's precisely where we are. We get four statements right in a row that describe the situation and all kind of say the same thing. It says it in four different ways. I I just read verse 1, but I want to go a little bit further. I want to reread that and now now listen to the first uh, three and a half verses of this chapter. The boy Samuel and ministered to Yahweh before Eli. And the word of Yahweh was rare in those days. There was no widespread revelation. And it came to pass at that time while Eli was lying down in his place, 
when his eyes began to grow dim so that he could not see, and before the lamp of God went out in the tabernacle of Yahweh where the ark of God was, while Samuel was lying down. And this is when Yahweh calls Samuel. So there's, there's four things in a row. First, the word was rare. Secondly, there's no vision. Thirdly, the high priest Eli is blind. And fourth, the lamp of God is about to go out in the tabernacle. Let's look at those four things quickly. For the, to the first point, the fact that the word was rare, what does this mean? It means that there's a lack of familiarity with God's word. There's a lack of comprehension. There's a lack of mastery over God's word. At this point, what do they have? What do they call the Bible at this point in history? Well, they have the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They also have the book of Joshua at this point. They probably have the book of Job and they have some of the Psalms. They have God's revelation to them. There's plenty of, this, of, of information there. There's lots of things to study and ponder and reflect on. But there's not a lot of evidence that the people are hearing it. They're not receiving it. They're not listening to that, that voice. So, so first, the word was rare and that there's no mastery over it. There's no familiarity over it. Secondly, there's no vision. He says there's no widespread revelation. The word is not going out to the people. There's no teaching going on. There's no information on how to live. It's kind of like the time before the Reformation. Remember, as we're studying church history on, on Wednesday nights, where uh, before the Reformation, the preaching in Europe was largely in a foreign language. People were ignorant of the Bible's teaching. Can you imagine living in a time where uh, you, you want to be faithful to the Lord Jesus, but you're just not being taught. You're not hearing anything. And it's not in your own tongue. It's not in your own language. And so you sort of just have to piece things together as best you can from, from kind of snippets here and there and pull it together. You, you know how many mistakes people make when they have the whole Bible. What kind of superstitions crop up when, when you only have scraps? What kind of confusion would there be? Well, that's, that's the situation here as well. Thirdly, we read that Eli, the high priest, was blind. This is something we alluded to last time, that he was certainly blind when it came to seeing the, the sins of his sons. Physical blindness in the Bible symbolizes moral blindness, the way that Isaac was blind. Isaac was blind to the foolishness of his son Esau. Esau was marrying Canaanite women, and, and yet Isaac still determined to favor this son over the faithful son. So here Eli is unable to see well enough to provide leadership, to make the right kinds of judgments concerning his sons. He couldn't curb their wickedness. He, couldn't, he had to hear about it. Remember, we read that last week. He said, sons, I've heard these things. He hasn't, he hasn't seen them for himself. And so he can't make sound judgments. And fourth, we read that the lamp in the tabernacle had not gone out yet. It's, it's about to go out. Uh, at some point soon after this, the lamp in the tabernacle goes out. What, what's the significance of that? Well, in Leviticus 24, we read that as long as that candlestick is in the holy place, you know, the candlestick with the seven branches, the seven, uh, you, you've seen a menorah, right? That, that, that candlestick that lit the inside of the holy place, as long as, as the, the holy place is in operation, the candles were to remain lit all the time. Well, there's no windows in the tabernacle, right? It would have been pitch black except for this lamp. This lamp shined on the worship that was conducted inside the tabernacle. And if the light goes out, 
What does that indicate? It means there's nothing going on in there. Nobody's putting out showbread on the table. Nobody's lighting incense. There's no prayer. There's no worship being brought before God at the holy place. If the light goes out, that means, that means we're out of business. It's like an old boarded up building. And we'll see in the next couple of chapters. In fact, we'll see next Lord's Day exactly how this happened, how the tabernacle went out, of, went out of business. It was torn apart. But here we read the light hasn't gone out yet, but, but it's about to. The light is about to go out. It, it reminds me of that Bob Dylan song. It's, it's not dark yet, but it's getting there. And that's, that's where we're headed. It's not dark yet, but we're getting there. We're getting pretty close to it. Now stack all these on top of each other. The word of Yahweh is rare. There's no widespread revelation. The high priest is blind, not just physically blind, but morally blind. And then, and then the lamp is about to go out in the tabernacle. And so every, everything is bad. The whole nation is in decline. There's this famine of teaching and preaching and hearing and living the word of God. It's because the word of God is so essential to life. It's so crucial to wise and skillful living before the face of God. The Bible is so critical for right worship before God. It's, it's, it's so foundational to right work and play. It's why we make such an effort to keep God's word in front of you every chance we get. Every opportunity we get, you, when we gather together as a church, we have Bible we come together and worship and we read and hear Bible. We say it back and forth to each other. We sing Bible. We pray Bible. That's why we read large sections of it and move through uh, the lectionary, reading large sections of, of Bible. It's, 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 it's for this reason, this critical for your life. It's critical for your, your, your happiness and your salvation and for your, your growth as Christians to have the Bible in front of you. I'm sure you've gone on vacation before and you visit some uh, evangelical church, which doesn't, you know, you get there and you say, well, is this, is this even a church? And you may get one little verse or two little verses here or there. And there's, there's not a lot of content there. It's very, it's very anemic. But that's why, that's why we've got to continue to keep the Bible in front of us and to continue uh, reading large sections and studying large sections of Bible together. That's why I moved through whole books. If, if all I did was skip around little sections of the epistles, we'd never get a full sense of the scope of God's revelation and his salvation of humanity. So, so that's why we keep the Bible in front of you is because we don't want to end up like this. We need the whole Bible lest we become blind and confused and ignorant as Israel did in this day. So while it looks like in this little period that God is withdrawing his presence from Israel, he doesn't quite blow out the candle yet. In fact, as the, as the lamp in the tabernacle goes out, he's lighting a new lamp. He's lighting a new candle. Samuel is going to carry the lamp of God and he's going to shine it everywhere. He's going to rebuild the nation as a prophet and a priest for the next 20 years. Samuel is about 19 years old at this point. And remember, we're marking his life in this period of history by that 40-year oppression of Israel by the Philistines. At the beginning of that 40-year period is when Obed is born to Ruth, who's the grandfather of David. It's the same time when Samson is born. It's the same time that Samuel is born. Now we're getting close to that midway point. At 20 years into the timeline of the Philistine oppression, 20 years in is when Eli, the high priest, and his sons die. 
And that's when the ark is captured by Philistia. So we're right before that. So we back up just about a year and Samuel's going to be about 19 years old. When He's not a little boy when the Lord calls him. He's a, he's a, he's a late teenager. He's not a child. And here we read, and just read it a minute ago, that, that, uh, that before the lamp of God went out in the tabernacle of Yahweh, where the ark of God was, while Samuel was lying down, Yahweh called Samuel. We read that Samuel is lying down in the place where the ark of God is. Now, Samuel's not sleeping in the holy place. He's not stretched out before the ark of the covenant. He's not a high priest. He can't go in there. And uh, a priest wouldn't even sleep in there, right? He's not sleeping, he's not sleeping in, in the tabernacle because he's not a priest. He's sleeping in one of the uh, buildings on the tabernacle complex. There, there's a, a place or two where 1 Samuel refers to this tabernacle as a temple. And it can be kind of confusing. You say, wait a minute. I thought we're still in tabernacle time. We haven't built the temple yet. That's later with Solomon. But because of the fact that this, this structure now in this period in history is, is kind of more solid. It's, it's less temporary. It's more permanent. We can refer to it as a temple. And the Bible does refer to it as a temple. Remember in Joshua 18, after the land was at rest, the tabernacle was set up in a permanent place. When they were wandering through the wilderness, they had to set it up and break it down, divide it up, carry it to the next place where they stopped and camped and they set it back up again and they ranged everything and that's where they worshiped and then they broke it all down again and took it on to the next place. But in Joshua, the land is subdued. They've conquered the land. Everything's at rest for the most part and that's where they set up the tabernacle in a permanent spot in Shiloh. And so gradually, other buildings would have cropped up around this. In fact, we read that uh, when the tabernacle was constructed, What did it have uh, passing between the chambers? There were curtains, right? There were curtains separating the various chambers. But here we read that the tabernacle has doors. There's there's more permanence. There's more solidity. There's more more structure given to uh, to this structure. And so we can assume, and it's, it's pretty safe to assume, that the Levites had apartments or rooms built around the tabernacle complex so when they served there, they would have a place to stay. This is where Eli is sleeping. This is where Samuel is staying. He's staying at the tabernacle in one of the apartments. Later on, when Solomon builds his uh, uh, temple, there are rooms for the priests and the Levites to stay there while they're serving at the tabernacle. So it's where uh, Samuel is sleeping here at the tabernacle that that one night the voice of the Lord comes from the Holy of Holies. The Lord uh, uh, speaks from the ark. This is how he spoke to Moses. His voice comes from the mercy seat, from between the cherubim on top of the ark. And God's voice calls out to Samuel. We'll, We'll continue reading. Yahweh called Samuel and he answered, here I am. So he ran to Eli and said, here I am for you called me. And he said, I did not call, lie down again. And he went and lay down again. So you know the story. Ever since Sunday school, you heard the story of Samuel sleeping and he hears this voice saying, Samuel, Samuel, get up. And Samuel gets up and he says to Eli, wakes Eli up and he says, here I am. And Eli rolls over and says, what are you talking about? I didn't call you. Boy, go back to sleep. I don't know why you're waking me up. But why does Samuel hear a voice that's the voice of Yahweh, and he thinks it's the voice of Eli. 
Is that a coincidence? Is that an accident that the voice of God is mistaken for the voice of the high priest? Was the high priest's voice supposed to sound like God? There's, there's something to ponder there, but we'll keep moving. Verse 6, Yahweh called yet again, Samuel. So Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. He answered, I did not call my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know Yahweh, nor was the word of Yahweh yet revealed to him. Now, what does it mean that Samuel didn't yet know Yahweh? Samuel knew the Lord in a spiritual sense. Samuel had heard of the Lord since he was a little boy, since his mother Hannah raised him. And here we started this chapter saying Samuel was serving before Yahweh. So what what does it mean that Samuel didn't yet know Yahweh? Well, It means that he doesn't know the Lord in an official sense as a prophet. He hasn't heard the voice of Yahweh directly yet. Verse 8, and Yahweh called to Samuel again the third time. These things always come in threes, don't they? They come in threes and there's some payoff at the end. So Yahweh called Samuel again the third time and he rose and went to Eli and said, here I am for you did call me. Then Eli perceived that Yahweh had called the boy. And therefore Eli said to Samuel, go lie down and it shall be if he calls you that you must say, speak Yahweh, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Now Yahweh came and stood and called, as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel answered, speak, for your servant hears. This, This last time that Yahweh calls Samuel, it says that he came and he stood. There's something different about this. It's not just the voice of God coming from the mercy seat, the voice of God coming from between the cherubim on top of the Ark of the Covenant out of the Holy of Holies. Yahweh comes out in some physical manifestation and stands outside of the tabernacle. This is highly significant. This is, this is important. This is God in the process of moving out of this tabernacle. God is in the process of withdrawing from the tabernacle. Now remember, as we saw last week, we saw all the terrors that Eli's sons subjected the worshipers of, of, of God to, and, and Eli's sons had turned the tabernacle into this place of corruption and theft and fornication. So God is gonna remove his presence from this tabernacle. Again, looking ahead, just a couple of chapters, the Ark of the Covenant, where God's presence rests, is going to be removed, and it's going to go into exile. And it's going to be as if God himself is exiled from Israel, while the tabernacle is taken apart. So, so follow this. God is, is angry with the way his people are treating his house. His house is corrupt, and so he removes his presence from it. And God himself is going to go into exile. Fast forward a few centuries to Ezekiel's day. When Judah is being judged through the Babylonian captivity, what happens there? The presence of God is removed from the temple. God withdraws from the temple and he goes over the river. Ezekiel sees in this vision that God, uh, his spirit goes over the river into Babylon. God goes into exile and the temple is destroyed. Do we ever see this happen again? Well, much later, Jesus himself is going to visit the second temple. He's going to judge that it is corrupt. It is a den of revolutionaries. And he's going to withdraw his presence. He's going to pronounce its destruction. He withdraws his blessing and the temple 
is destroyed. Do we see a pattern here? Do we see something repeating? In each time, God withdraws his presence. He withdraws his blessing from his house that has been abused. It has been corrupted by the, by the perversion of the people. He withdraws, and God himself ends up taking on the punishment and the exile and the humiliation that his people deserve. This is the gospel, and we see it in Samuel, and we see it in Ezekiel, and we see it in Matthew. We see it over and over that God himself is taking on the shame and the humiliation and the exile that his people deserve. And this is how he purifies his people. This is how he saves and delivers his people by taking the shame on himself. Of course, this is what Jesus does. Jesus is exiled so that we can be brought near. Jesus is shamed so that we can be glorified. Jesus thirsts so that we can drink. This is, this is the gospel. This is how Jesus does it because this is how God does it. God has already done it. He does it in 1 Samuel. He does it in Ezekiel and he will do it in Jesus. It's not as if Jesus is this kind, loving uh, manifestation of God that kind of gets everything right. After God has kind of bumbled through and messed everything up throughout the Old Testament, now Jesus comes and he says, no, this is how you have to treat these people. This is what you have to do. God has always been self-sacrificial. From the beginning of creation, God has poured himself out into his people and into his creation. From the beginning, God has sacrificed himself. And so Jesus is one more glorious manifestation of that. Jesus is just one more, not just in a, 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 a diminutive sense, but Jesus is one more uh, manifestation of the self-sacrificial work of God. This is the same God. So now we see him ready to do the very same thing. God steps out of the Holy of Holies and he says to Samuel in so many words, I am withdrawing my presence from this place. I'm going to leave you in charge. This is what he says to Samuel in verse 11. Yahweh said to Samuel, behold, I will do something in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. In that day, I will perform against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows because his sons made themselves vile and he did not restrain them. And therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of, Israel, of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. The people haven't been listening, God says, but this is going to make their ears tingle. Their ears are going to ring with this news that they are about to hear. This is going to wake them up. They're going to hear the news one day, very soon, that the high priest and his sons are dead, and the Ark of the Covenant is gone. It's captured. It's with the Philistines. God's presence isn't with us anymore. Can you imagine worse news? I mean, as bad as things got during the time of the judges, nothing like this ever happened. The high priest was always ministering before God. The Ark of the Covenant was never captured. The sanctuary was all, always held together. Nothing this terrible ever happened before. But this, God's, this is going to be a bombshell. The people's ears are going to ring when they hear this news. And hopefully this will wake them up and revive them and reform them. And once again, God pronounces the sentence against Eli and his sons because Eli did not restrain his sons. And because his boys ran wild and made themselves vile, God says the house of Eli 
is finished. It's done. I am commissioning you, Samuel, now as a prophet to carry the word and also as a high priest to minister before my face. Verse 15. So Samuel lay down until morning. I think it's interesting. It doesn't say Samuel slept until morning. He just laid down. How could you sleep after this? Samuel lay down until morning and opened the doors of the house of Yahweh. And Samuel was afraid to tell Eli the vision. The Holy Spirit never wastes words. You know this. Uh, so why are we told about Samuel laying down until morning and then in the morning at the break of day, opening the doors? What is the significance of these doors and the fact that Samuel opens them this next day? Well, we need a little, uh, need a little theology of doorways, a little theology of the door. There's a lot to say, but I'm just going to focus on one or two things. In 1 Chronicles 26, which is where I know you all do your daily devotions in Chronicles with the lists. And I, I know you've got these verses memorized, but I'm going to read them anyway from 1 Chronicles 26. Concerning the divisions of the gatekeepers of the Kohathites, Meshelamiah, the son of Cory, of the sons of Asaph, we get the details, we get the lists of those who kept the doors and the gates of the house of the Lord under David. Among these were the divisions of the gatekeepers, among the chief men having duties just like the brethren to serve in the house of Yahweh. And they cast lots for each gate, the small as well as the great, according to their father's house. The lot for the east gate fell to Shelemiah, and they cast lots for his son Zechariah, wise counselor, and his lot came out for the north gate, to Obed-Edom, the south gate, and to his sons, the storehouse, to Shupim and Hosea, the lot came out for the west gate, with a Shalaketh gate on the ascending highway, watchmen opposite watchmen. On the east were six Levites, on the north four uh, more each day, on the south four each day, and on the storehouse two by two. And here's the verse you all memorized in Awana when you were kids. As for the parbar on the west, there were four on the highway and two at the parbar. Remember that one? What's the parbar? What's well, a colonnade? Uh, it's a Hebrew word that uh, nobody knew how to translate early. And they said, oh, wait a minute. That must, that must have been the colonnade. These were the divisions of the gatekeepers among the sons of Korah and among the sons of Merari. We've got 20 verses there saying who's in charge of the gates. How do we decide who guards the doorways and who guards the house of the Lord? Who is assigned? Now, why does the Lord say there's supposed to be six on the east side and four on the other sides, two by two? Why do, why do we have all this detail? I don't know. But the fact that the Holy Spirit gives us 20 verses on gatekeepers and gatekeeping of the house of Yahweh indicates to us that guarding the doorways is important. Hold on to that. And remember um, the, the vision that God gives Ezekiel of the heavenly temple, the heavenly tabernacle. He goes into detail about the architecture of the doors and the gateways and the sizes of the rooms of his heavenly temple. And then he tells Ezekiel this, listen to this from Ezekiel 43, son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and let them measure the pattern. And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the temple and its arrangements, its exits and its entrances, its entire design and all its ordinances and all its forms and all its laws, write it down in their sight so that they may keep its whole design and all its ordinances and perform them. This is the law of the temple. The whole area surrounding the mountaintop is most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple. God gives Ezekiel this vision of the temple with specifically its entrances and its exits. And he says, write this down and repeat this to all of Israel. 
that they may be ashamed of their iniquities. When have you ever looked at a blueprint and felt struck to the heart with grief over your sins and your wickedness? When, when have you done that? I invite you this afternoon, when you have time, you sit out on the deck, read all eight chapters at the end of the book of Ezekiel. And then email me if you feel struck to the heart with your iniquities, that you're ashamed of your iniquities after reading the details and the cubits and the lengths and the breadths and the heights. Why don't we? Why, why does this all sound very foreign to us and very distant? Well, we just, we don't know God's word. We don't, we don't know it inside and out. We're not picking up on everything that the spirit is giving us. Um, that's, that's why. But one thing we can know is this. One thing we can know is that the gates of the temple and the guards of the temple were there to guard the morality of the people while at worship. They were there to guard the rituals and the sacrifices and the duties of the priests and worshipers before God. God took doors and gates seriously. And God's people took doors and gates and guards seriously. These were not afterthoughts. There were people to be kept out. There were those who defile and blaspheme and corrupt the worship of God and had no business being there. Sinners were welcome. Those who were seeking forgiveness, they were more than welcome. The sick and the widow and the orphan were welcome. But if you're there to be wicked, if you're there to be perverse, if you're there to blaspheme the name of Yahweh, there are guards there and there are gates there and there are doors there to keep you out. This is highly Significant. So the ones who keep the gates are important. Who is the first gatekeeper in the Bible? Adam was given charge over the garden to bless it and keep it. What does keep mean? Keep means guard. Keep means protect. Adam failed, didn't he? Adam failed in his duty. And so God puts an angel there with a flaming sword to guard and keep the garden. But in this generation, in 1 Samuel, we see that the gatekeepers are the corruptors. The ones who are charged with the task of protecting the place of worship are the defilers of the place of worship. They're attacking the women who serve at the doorways to the tabernacle. They're not guarding worship. They're not guarding the people. They're not guarding the morality. Corruption is centered at the doorways now with Eli's sons. And instead of guarding their defiling, the people need, if they're going to be revived, if they're going to be reformed, they need guards who will protect the gates of holiness, defend the bride, lead the people in worship. And once the lamp goes out, they're going to need somewhere to go, somewhere to hear the word of the Lord. And this all comes together in this young man, Samuel. He is going to be the gatekeeper for Israel. That's why his very first official duty is to open up the doors. He wakes up in the morning and he opens the doors. This means he's the new gatekeeper. He's going to protect the holy things. He is going to preach God's word, which is absent in this day. So having been commissioned, he opens up the doors and it's as if the word, which was locked up inside, all still and quiet, now can be spread. Now it can go out. What Israel deserves right now is wrath, but with the calling of Samuel, they're going to get grace. They deserve judgment, but they're getting blessing. Well, Samuel is afraid to tell Eli what he heard and saw. So in verse 15, uh, Samuel was afraid to tell Eli the vision. Then Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he answered, here I am. 
And he said, what is the word that Yahweh spoke to you? Please do not hide it from me. God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all the things that he said to you. Then Samuel told him everything and he hid nothing from him. And he said, Eli said, it is Yahweh. Let him do what seems good to him. A couple of quick observations. First of all, Eli calls Samuel my son. He says, Samuel, my son. Again, there's a, an adoption of sorts. The adopted son here is the faithful son. The natural sons, Eli's sons, are unfaithful. And we'll see this repeated. I'll bring this up again because it keeps coming up in uh, 1 Samuel. But remember that. And then, and then Eli says, go ahead and tell me what the Lord told you and don't hold anything back. And Samuel tells him, Basically, God is going to bring your house to nothing. He's going to kill you and he's going to kill your sons. And what is Eli's response? Eli's answer to this is so lame. It is so, it is so awful. It's so curious. He says, okay, all right, well, you know God. He's going to do what he's going to do. That's his response. Now, when God issues a, a warning of judgment, that's a sign for you to repent Warnings are opportunities to repent. Just as he told uh, Nineveh, you know, yet three days of, what is it? Yet 40 days and Nineveh is going to be overthrown. That's a warning. That's a warning. But Eli just says, oh, well, you know, God does what he does. You know, I am old and I'm tired and I don't care anymore. So now because of Eli's abdication, all of the responsibilities of leadership and service at the tabernacle are going to pass to Samuel. We'll finish with this. Uh, Verse 19. So Samuel grew and Yahweh was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel had been established as a prophet of Yahweh. Then Yahweh appeared again in Shiloh for Yahweh revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of Yahweh. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. See how things have reversed themselves in just a few verses by the work of the Lord. At the first, the word was rare, but now... Through Samuel, God's word is going out to all of Israel. The former gatekeepers were corrupt, but now the keeper of the doors is pleasing to God. There are all kinds of comparisons that we could make here between Samuel and the Lord Jesus. Samuel is the well-beloved son who pleases the Lord. In the absence of the ark and in the absence of the tabernacle, Samuel is going to carry the presence of Yahweh to the people. He's going to carry the word of Yahweh to the people. He's the source of instruction and direction and wisdom for Israel. He calls Israel to faithfulness. Jesus opened the doors of the temple, didn't he, at his crucifixion. The veil was torn. Jesus opened the doors of the temple and broadcast his word and his presence throughout the world. But not only is Samuel... Uh, so much like our Lord Jesus, but also there are many ways his day is like our day. And so his role is our role. His call is, is our call. We live in a day where people don't know how to listen, especially to the word of God. And not even Christians really care what God says in his word. Who, who really cares about the Bible? It's just odd, confusing collection of texts and you can make it say whatever you want it to say. And you don't, it, it's, it's not definitive and it's not objective. It's very subjective. So, so who really cares? You know, I, I know what I think. I know what I believe. I just kind of pull these threads together from various things. It's mostly how I feel about things. It's mostly my own emotional experiences. And that's my religion. That's, that's, 
that's the, how, how to sum up the, the, the contemporary perspective. That is our dogma. We really can't be bothered by what God says or do the work it takes to understand what God has said and expects of us. That, that's the world we live in. The word of God is pretty rare in some sense, wouldn't you say? And so you and I, like Samuel, you and I have been commissioned, like Samuel, to bear the word of God as if, as if we were an ark, to carry his law inside of us, to have it on our lips and in our minds, and to know it inside out, to even maybe possibly get to the point where we read Ezekiel's description of the temple, and it does stab us in the heart, where we, do, uh, we are ashamed of our iniquities in some way, to know it so well and to be able to speak it unashamedly, boldly, courageously, to carry the word of God and the presence of God with us like Samuel did, to be good gatekeepers, to be boundary keepers. We don't violate good things. We don't corrupt. We don't defile. We protect. We keep. We guard the gates. That's what covenant keepers are. What, is a, what does a covenant have to do with marriage? What does it have to do with children? What does it have to do with education? What does it have to do with government? What does it have to do with work? Everything. The covenant has everything to do with that. It's, it's because we live in an age of covenant breaking and boundary breaking that the world needs gatekeepers. The world needs people who know the lines and know how not to cross them and where not to cross them. And to do this in a day and age of deafness, a hardness of heart toward the word, we must be people of God. We must be trained listeners. It is so hard to listen and to pay attention when there's so many distractions, when there's always this, this nonsense going off all the time to really listen to people. In fact, it may be there's no greater way to love people than to listen to them, to hear them speak, to listen, to turn off the stuff that teaches you how not to pay attention, to switch off the distractions, to limit distraction, and to ultimately submit yourself regularly to God's word. The word is rare when we tune it out. But let's not be satisfied with that ignorance, with that, with that rejection. Let us not make our, our homes like Israel was in that day. Don't be satisfied with biblical illiteracy. Open up your ears and your hearts to hear it and receive it and to grow by it. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would indeed uh, grow us up like your servant Samuel. We thank you for him and for his life. We thank you for calling him. And we pray that we too in our day would be bearers of the word of God and that we would be gatekeepers. We pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and give us the strength and courage to do this. In Jesus' name, amen.